Uh, next song will be entitled The Resistance by Matt Still. It'll be started with a video presentation. That song has bass. You guys uh, catch some of the lyrics there? I looked around for a YouTube video so you could, you know, read along with it. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not a huge fan of hip hop. You know, I'm not really that stylish. Um, but it's a fascinating uh, musician. He's a Christian musician, and you know, he captures the imagination with that beat. It's a disturbing beat. 
But the words are even more disturbing about what it says about the world that we live in. You know, you may like that cadence and that style, the hip-hop style. Who likes that? <laughs> Nobody will admit. Ron will admit. He did say he's got the drum down, so he's willing to do that in the worship team. We just need to find somebody that could, you know, say the lyrics that fast, because I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't really like that style of music ordinarily, but there's something about that song to me that's it's eerie, and it drives home the point of the lyrics. It's aggressive, and it's purposely aggressive. And especially if you've listened to some of the, of the songs that uh, Josh Garrels has done. And this, this one is taken from the album Love and War and the Sea in Between. And it's about the battle. And it's about the love. It's about the war. And it is about the distance between where we are now and where we want to end up. Either way, I think you can agree maybe the prose, not so much the poetry, but the prose in there of this song, this message is remarkable. He is a Christian songwriter, as I mentioned, and he just brings out these truths that I really want to focus a few, on a few parts today. It might appear depressing on the surface. It's not a positive outlook on the world that we live in, but it is important for us to be aware of it. You know, I think sometimes I find myself being a little bit head in the sand. I don't have cable TV at home. I don't want it in my house. Even if I could pick the programming and control the programming, the advertising in between the programming is not something I want in my house for my children to see. And so we don't have cable TV. And so sometimes uh, when I'm on a business trip, as, as I was this last week, I'm in the hotel room and they've got cable TV and I'm just mesmerized about the stuff that goes on in the world that maybe I miss. I tend to get my news from the web, from BBC, and I'm really selective. Okay, I can see, yep, that's depressing, that's depressing. Oh, that looks interesting, I'll read that one. But we do live in a world that is troubled. But we often don't want to know. We don't want to know about the darkness that surrounds us. Just head in the sand, I just want to do my thing, I want to live a Christian life, I'm just trying to keep it together for myself, let, al let alone what's going on in the world. And I don't want those influences because it's hard enough as it is. And so it's easy to be drawn away and not to be aware of what's going on, not wanting to hear about the forces of darkness that are gaining more and more control in the world and in our society. We are, in fact, as Josh says, born into a system that is constructed for failure. It's a fantastic line, isn't it? We are born into a system that is constructed for failure. The systems of this world, the social orders, the political methods of man, even the best of these systems, even the most noble of these systems can be warped and manipulated, and we see it every day, don't we? Warped and manipulated in front of us when meaning is derived from something that does not mean that, and they know it doesn't mean that, and yet they will twist it anyway for their own purposes. There is a dark force in this world, and at the head is a wicked and destructive spirit who seeks to devour us and to entice us to devour one another, and then to devour ourselves. The Apostle Paul famously makes this point in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in heavenly or in high places. Do we wrestle against those powers? He says we do. 
But maybe we don't if we have our head in the sand. Maybe we don't if we're hiding ourselves from the world. Do we wrestle? It's so enticing to keep quiet, to live our life. Live and let live. Right? And who can argue with that? You don't want to necessarily get in your neighbor's business, and you don't want him getting into yours. And let's just live and let live. It's natural to do that. We don't desire war. But Josh Garrell says this in that song that we just listened to. Follow new rules with invisible strings. And become a puppet in the diabolical scheme. How do men become part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. Think about it. If we are following or acquiescing to the new rules of society, what is right and what is wrong, what is moral, what is good, if we acquiesce to that, if we accept it, we are following it. And it has invisible strings on us that changes our speech, that changes our behavior, changes our interaction with people around us a little bit. I mean, who is not influenced by politically correct, you know, groupthink, right? We know what we can't say at work. We know what we can't say in, you know, in public. There's a lot of things that we can't say, including some of the things that we believe, right? Because they're not politically acceptable. These invisible strings moving the puppet, controlling our minds, controlling our actions. And so he, says, he asks the question, how do good men become part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. In resisting. We've heard it another way. Evil prevails when good men do nothing. Or as C.S. Lewis said, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You may say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening to the secret wireless from our friends. That is, the, that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day or in this modern era to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hooves and horns and all? Well, what time of day has to do with it, I do not know. And I am not particular about the hooves and the horns. But in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. There is an evil force, a dark force in this world. And he is present and engaged. And he is against us. We do live in enemy-occupied territory. So we should just hunker down and wait for the cavalry, right? Isn't that how it works? Well, there's some problems with that, isn't it? We just saw an example of that last night. What was that event that was last night? Halloween. Harmless little celebration, you know, uh, kids go around getting, you know, entirely too much high fructose corn syrup, and then their parents expect them to go to bed that night. There's nothing wrong with it. It's harmless, and it is a very benign example of how the world works, though, isn't it? Nobody understands the origin of it. Nobody understands the imagery 
of ghosts and goblins and spirit beings and the traditions that used to be coupled with this were this was the time of year you could pray to Satan. Did you know that? Pray to Satan for blessings on your uh, marriage. Really? Satan's going to bless your marriage, right? Who wants that? Blessings on your children. Uh, making pacts with the devil was a good one for this day to avoid death. Oh, but it's just a harmless celebration. It is a benign example, but it's an example nonetheless. This is how influenced our world is. This is how controlled our world is. But there is a more sinister side to the dark forces, right? We know this. We've maybe seen personal examples of it. But there's something going on right now in Houston, Texas that I'm sure you've all heard about. I wanted to just dig into this a little bit. Because in recent months, there's been this legal battle. And when I first heard this, I thought Renee was, you know, reading from some News of the World article or something when she was telling me, you know, because the next story was going to be about aliens, you know, abducting President Obama. Ooh, that'd be good. Oh, no, no mind. Focus. But the, this issue down there, I mean, I was just stunned. There's no way, there is no way that this would be allowed, that the media would allow it, that people would allow it, that the Justice Department would allow it. Well, as we know, it's allowed, or at least so far. The angst, the political and media coverage has risen to such a level that there's now a national campaign. Have you guys heard about the national campaign? They're asking pastors and preachers to send copies of their sermons to the mayor of Houston and to send Bibles to the mayor of Houston. And the reason being is that part of the problem that's going on down there is that five pastors of major churches in Houston have been subpoenaed to provide their sermons and their emails and their documentation about any discussions or meeting notes regarding the office of the mayor or the programs that she's implementing. I'm sorry, did we just slip into Nazi Germany somewhere along the way? Unbelievable. I want to read you some basic facts. Now, this is taken from the website ChristianPost.com. I've compared it with some other articles that I've read. And they are the least inflammatory. Because as happens in any of these issues, right, you have your extreme right, and then you have the left. Maybe the extreme left, too. But there is truth in here. And I think these guys have got it. It says, in May, Houston city government passed the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, HERO, a ban, uh, to ban discrimination based upon sexual orientation or gender identity. After passage, opponents began collecting signatures to add a ballot measure to repeal the new law. In July, those opponents delivered over 50,000 signatures, well above the 17,269 that were needed to add the question to the next election ballot. The city secretary approved the signatures, but that decision was later overruled by the mayor and the city attorney, who decided that about, uh, 35,000 of the signatures were invalid. The petition organizers then sued the city, arguing that the signatures were valid. As part of the process used to collect evidence for their case, the city, represented by attorneys working pro bono, subpoenaed communications, including sermon notes and email, from five area pastors related 
uh, well, you know, their, their subpoena is related to Hero, the petition, Mayor Anise Parker, homosexuality, or gender identity. So that's the contents of the subpoenas. They want anything to do with that. Pretty broad. The pastors, those particular pastors, were not involved in the lawsuit. Their involvement was that they encouraged people to sign the petition. That's all they did. This article asks the question, why did it happen? The answer is it depends on who you ask. Those involved in the lawsuit and their supporters say that the purpose of the subpoenas was to send a message to social conservatives that they should stay silent on political issues or they will be harassed by government forces, much like the Internal Revenue Service harassed conservative groups ahead of the 2012 election. Mayor Anise Parker said that this was simply a case of overly exuberant lawyers who went too far in their search for information. And if she had seen the subpoenas ahead of time, she would not have approved them. The Christian Post has spoken to sources familiar with the ongoing dispute who believe that Parker is not telling the truth and that she personally directed the subpoenas. They point to this tweet that she initially posted before the story became more controversial and she backed off. Quote, if the, past, if the five pastors used pulpits for politics, their sermons are fair game. Where instructions giving, given on filling out anti-hero petition? Question mark. And she signs it, dash A. And they have a note here, and they said, her Twitter account notes that all tweets that are directly from her are signed with an A. Was the city of Houston wrong to issue subpoenas? Yes. There is now broad agreement among experts from across the political spectrum that the city was wrong to issue subpoenas, including the mayor herself. So she's even come out and said that that was wrong. And the Texas chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. Wow. About fell out of my chair when I read that one. While, while lawyers in court cases will often cast a wide net to get as much information as possible that might pertain to the case, they can go too far and abuse their subpoena power. At a minimum, there is agreement that the subpoenas were overly broad. Beyond that, freedom of speech and freedom of religion concerns have been raised. The ACLU of Texas put it this way, while a lot of things are fair game in a lawsuit, Government must use special care when intruding into matters of faith. The government should never engage in fishing expeditions into the inner workings of a church. And any request for information must be carefully tailored to seek only what is relevant to the dispute. Last, I think this is the last question. What happens next? The controversy is not over. On Friday, Mayor Parker announced that she revised the subpoenas. The pastors will now be subpoenaed for all speeches or presentations related to the petition drive or to hero, but not including sermons. Her counter to her initial sermons are fair game tweet, Parker added, we don't want their sermons in announcing the change. In a Friday interview with the Christian Post, Eric Stanley, senior legal counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the five pastors, said the change does not go far enough that they will continue to fight the subpoenas because what the pastor said during the gathering of the signatures has no bearing on whether the signatures themselves are valid. Quote, the city just doesn't get it, he added. The only way to resolve the First Amendment issue is to withdraw the subpoenas entirely. I mean, are you stunned by that? I mean, in one way, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. But in another way, such blatant abuse of power. I mean, it's unbelievable. There's, there's a lot more detail, too, and, and maybe some of it is a little less certain or accurate. 
But in my opinion, it's pretty clear. There's a First Amendment rights issue. And the First Amendment is reinforced by the 14th Amendment, which is then further reinforced by Supreme Court pres precedent, which basically says that the First Amendment applies to the federal government, applies to the states, applies to all jurisdictions below the states, including the city. In case you've forgotten what the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And yet it would appear that in Houston, if you petition your government, your city government, for, for you know, uh, an addressing of your grievances, well, the petition is just thrown out. And then furthermore, you're harassed by legal tools for trying to make your case, trying to present your cause, and having the valid signatures to do so. I just find it incredible. Does anybody else find it incredible? I, I just, I was just astonished that this could happen. And I scoured the internet, and as far as I can find, there is no statement by the Justice Department to say that they are going to come into Houston and investigate for civil rights violations. Right? It's not there. It makes me angry. It should make us all angry. But of course, in the end, legal arguments, they don't matter, do they? In the end, the Constitution doesn't even matter. Because it can be manipulated and twisted and warped and changed. And the progress of time, it finally starts to decay. And it works its way into a flawed system. And that's what we have now. Because it's manipulated right before our eyes by the forces of darkness. So what are we to do with all of this? Where does that leave us? Do we have a role in this? I'm going to print this, uh, this sermon off and probably have my wife spell check it first. And I'm going to mail it to the mayor of Houston. Why? Does it matter? I mean, is there really anything that we can do? I don't live in that jurisdiction either. Well, I think what Garrels was saying earlier, what we, quote, what we let, looked at earlier, that if we don't do anything, then we're just acquiescing to the system. So we have to figure out what we can do. Because we know better. I mean, you realize we know that there's a better way. So many people in the world just like, eh, just live and let live, man. If they want to use this bathroom or that bathroom, you know, who cares? It's all right. There's no difference. But we know differently. We have a different perspective. We know that there are forces above and beyond that of a government or a country or a city that are ruling the lives of men and women. Lewis is also right. We do live in enemy territory and we forget about it because the enemy wants us to forget about it. He wants us to not see behind the curtain. There's an example I want to bring out, though. In 1940, after France fell, the Nazi forces just swarmed all over France, taking the northern half directly, and then the Vichy government in the southern half. And yet, 
in the midst of that, their country overrun by the most powerful armies in Europe, overrun by these forces of darkness, in the midst of all of that, ordinary men and women got together and they formed what we just simply know as the resistance. Very simple. The resistance. They engage in acts of sabotage and insurgency. They hampered and undermined the occupation forces. They harassed the Germans, sometimes to such an extent that they actually had to move military assets from the fight with, whether it be the Russians or the, the rest of the Allies, they had to move it back to kind of quell some of these unruly French resistance fighters. Even when their only, only ally was a weakened and battered British nation that nobody thought would ever be able to hold out long enough, even with that, they continued to struggle. They continued to attack and undermine the enemy. They blew up bridges, they blew up railway lines, they attacked convo convoys of supplies and troops, they disrupted the enemy communications, they destroyed telephone lines, they helped to smuggle in and out of France Allied spies. They hid and returned to England Allied pilots who had been shot down over Europe. They looked for every opportunity to unsettle, undermine the enemy. They showed incredible courage, incredible endurance, all in the hope that their actions would one day contribute to their own freedom and the freedom of their brothers and sisters in France. But yet they knew, right? They had no hope of defeating this enemy by themselves. They didn't have the, the equipment. They didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the bullets and the explosives and everything that they would need to destroy the enemy. Yet they still resisted. They were still a resistance. They didn't give up. They had this hope, maybe there's a chance that a power from somewhere will come and we will be able to join with them. And so they continued, continued to fight in terrible losses. In some instances, in regions that they were really active in, the Germans rounded up entire villages and killed every single person as the resistance fighters were in the hills watching. Watching their friends and their neighbors and their family members. They did not surrender. They resisted. And finally, on the day of days, it must have been a sight to them, and the sea turned to fire, and the skies were black with paratroopers and the largest invasion force in history hit the beaches of Normandy. They were there to meet the Allied forces. The resistance joined up and fought with the British and Americans and the Canadians, fought alongside them and continued to liberate their country. And by the end of World War II, that resistance had grown to be the fourth largest army in Europe with 1.2 million men in arms. And it all started because men and women said, no, we are going to resist. What an example. What an example for us. Just humbly. But we have another example. We have an even greater example of resistance. And it's found in that great faith chapter of Hebrews 11 and verse 32. We know it very well. He said, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, and also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword. 
Out of weakness, they were made strong. They became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. But others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and of imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. How many unnamed individuals endured terrible oppression, terrible sacrifice? Maybe to just take one little piece of one of the writings of one of the apostles from one city to another, from one town to another, just to spread the word of God. Incredible examples. And they are the cloud of witnesses. And they stand with us. You know, we haven't resisted to the level that they did. Not yet. But if we don't resist now, are we going to resist to that extent? If we don't have a habit of resisting the forces of darkness now, will we continue when it gets a little tougher? Will we even start? Should we resist? Well, Peter thinks so. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Resist him. It's not, you have an option here, you can, you can resist him or you can have somebody else do it. It's resist him, period. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Resist. We are called to be a resistance. We are not going to defeat the enemy by ourselves. We're not. But Peter says resist him. Paul says resist him. All the saints that have gone before says resist him. Don't put our heads in the sand. Don't ignore what's going on or shy away from the battle. And you know, here's the thing. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. He knows who you are. He knows who I am. We have no choice. Even if we're, you know, quiet and stay out of his way, he is going to come for us because we know better. We know what the world to come looks like. We know that God wants as many as he can have in his first resurrection. He knows that we know his end is coming. We are the embodiment of everything he hates. He's coming after us whether we resist him or not. So why not resist him? As I read earlier, our warfare is not physical. We don't resist flesh and blood. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. The men and women of the Houston city government are not our enemies. Others that believe the same way as them, have the same political agenda as them, are not our enemies. But it's so hard to not hate them. 
and everything that they stand for. That's human nature. It's so hard to not look at them. You know, the Bible says pray for your leaders. Pray that they get eaten by a bear. That's what it meant, right? No. But that is human nature, isn't it? So part of our resistance, as Curtis was talking about, is knowing, knowing the right answer. Knowing the right direction to take. The spiritual answer. The spiritual perception. Because even the most vehement, harshest, whether they be liberal or conservative extremists, are wounded. They are in that place because they are damaged goods. And they are in the control of the enemy. And they don't know it. So as the resistance, what should we do? I've broken it out into five principles or five sections. As the resistance, firstly, we should disrupt the enemy's lines of communication. How do we do that? In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, it says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I believe that we can disrupt his line of communication by prayer. You know, one of the ways in which you can cancel out a radio broadcast is to do another radio broadcast. Right, Ron? Check me here. You can cancel that out. You can broadcast on that same wavelength, in that same frequency, in that same area. And there you go. The communication is disrupted. If we were such prayer warriors, I wonder how much disruption in the network of communication we could have around us and around the saints of God and between one another. Powerful communication with God knocking out the power of the enemy. Intercessory prayer. Changing, perhaps, the control that the enemy can have on people, on society around us. The Spirit of God working within us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Therefore I exalt, therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That's what we want, right? We talked about that. We want to live in peace. We don't want to have to mess with our neighbor. We don't want to have to put ourselves out there and get in trouble or at risk or our families at risk. This is one of the ways that maybe we can influence the world around us. Paul seemed to think so. That we can influence the actions of our leaders, even if we disdain them. Even if we disdain everything that they stand for. Prayer can accomplish these things. Prayers of the resistance, I think, really can disrupt the enemy's communication. Second point is to counter the enemy's propaganda. You know, we live in an incredible information age, don't we? Anything is accessible on the internet, including every piece of junk that's available, and also every piece of truth. And so now we have this menagerie of information and nobody can figure out what is true and what is lies. But we can. We have our own material that is the truth and we can counteract the enemy's propaganda. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 15, we are to speak the truth in love. That is so hard to do when somebody is in your face 
when they are expressing such vitriol and arguing so vehemently for things that you know are wrong and are so disruptive. You want to just smack them around. But we can give the truth in love. In Zechariah 8 and verse 16, this is how it's going to be. And so, this is how we should be. It says, these are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor, and do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. What does that look like, though? You know, sometimes you just want to go into the store, buy some groceries, and leave. But depending on the time of year, you get an invitation to avoid a conversation, don't you? Or the discussion starts to take place in work or some other social event, and you just, eh, I'm not going to say anything because my answer is not acceptable to the world. We're told to speak the truth. And I wonder if we avoid the answer. Is that the same as telling a lie? Not telling the truth? I don't know. That's up to each and every one of us. But we should look to be resistance. And if you're in the mode of, if we're in the mode of resistance, then just resist, right? It's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. Then there isn't any question. Number three, assist Jesus in setting the captives free. We're so familiar with what he said in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I think we're called to do the exact same thing. We need to engage more with our community. We need to be out in our neighborhoods around here. Let's start with that. We need to really get into the lives of the people that we can reach and touch and bring them some truth. Bring them to God's church. Bring them to some of the events that we're having or bring them to our homes and build a relationship so we can find out what they need and the help that they may need. Number four, you're all doing really well. Me too, hopefully. Attend the resistance meeting. But that's what we are here, aren't we? C.S. Lewis said it, when we are here, it's like we're all tuned in to the wireless, as they did in occupied Europe. And they listened in to the broadcast from the BBC and encoded within the menagerie of sports scores secret messages telling them about a drop or a flyover or something that they needed to do in the resistance. Attending church where we get to meet one another. We get to figure out how can we resist better? How can we resist more effectively? What can I do? Because there is a role for every single one of us. Every single one in resisting. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. I bet you there were a lot of meetings leading up to D-Day. They didn't know what day it was coming. But I'm pretty sure they knew there was activity. They knew something was going to happen. 
There's a lot of spies roaming around. There's a lot of misinformation. A lot of things happening. A lot of broadcasts happening. And then, of course, that one broadcast that told them, we're coming. Get ready. And we long for that day, don't we? And that's why we should be here, consistently working together, looking for that day that's approaching. And then finally, it's pretty basic. We need to suit up. We need to put on the armor. We need to remember that we are in a war, that we are the resistance fighters, that this is the role that we have been given. There's got to be a reason while we're here. There's got to be a reason why God opened our minds, opened our eyes to see the world as it really is. It is to be these resistance fighters. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you, with, you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Be ready. Suit up. Engage in the resistance. Battle. Don't leave a part of our armor off. We'll get, we'll get hit at that point. You know, when we engage with an enemy, when military minds come clashing together on the battlefield, they don't attack the enemy where they're strong. That's, that's the very last thing that they want to do. They will attack their foe where they're weakest, where they've had an oversight, where they position themselves in a bad situation where they're not protected. We need to put on the whole armor. And then we need, he says, praying always. We've got to have that communication. Where's the enemy moving? We're going to re readjust. Where are they now? We're readjusting. And we're resisting at every turn. Put on the whole armor of God. And long live the resistance.